You can open your Bibles to the 27th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew for our study of God's Word today. And as you're turning there, I do have a bit of an introduction. Some 20 years after the horrid war crimes at Auschwitz, Adolf Eichmann was brought to trial. The principal witness was Auschwitz survivor Yehiel Denur. Denur entered the courtroom and came face to face with Eichmann for the first time since being sent to Auschwitz. Stopped cold, Denur began to sob uncontrollably and then fainted while the presiding judge pounded his gavel for order. As a footnote, you can watch this on YouTube, not now. But I watched it last night, it's rather interesting. The reason was not hatred or intimidation. But Denur said sometime later on 60 Minutes, when asked about this, I was afraid of myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. Eichmann is in all of us. Pretty sobering stuff. As an introduction to a far different trial, the trial of Jesus before the Romans, Jesus who didn't ever do anything heinous. In fact, Jesus didn't ever do anything even the least bit wrong. In fact, Jesus always and forever while he was here on earth did the right thing. He only ever loved his neighbor perfectly. He only ever loved his father perfectly. And yet, all different kinds of people, religious people, people who are part of the right religion, people you would expect otherwise of, called for his crucifixion, called for him to be condemned as if he were the worst person ever. And that's why I use the introduction that I used, because as we look at Jesus on trial, there's something of the Eichmann in all of us we're able to observe, whether it be from the Jews or the Romans or others, demanding that the sinless Son of God be horrifically crucified as if he were the worst criminal ever is daunting and unsettling. And I believe meant to teach us and remind us something of the human heart so that we might all know, even if it unsettles us, that we too need this Jesus to bring forgiveness of our sins because no one does good no, not one, ultimately. So I hope you found Matthew 27 this morning. I promise we'll do a Christmas ser sermon next Sunday. Uh, but if we don't know why he came, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So we will focus on his birth next week. But this morning, we were focusing on why he was born. And he was born to die, to give himself up for us at the hands of sinful human beings. We're going to look at Matthew 27, verses 1 to 31. So sometimes we'll go really fast, and other times we won't go so fast. But it is a enthralling, intriguing narrative 
of Jesus being judged by the Romans. But first, before we get to the Romans, if you look at verse 1 with me, when morning came, all think stress by Matthew. This is universal agreement of the worst kind. All the chief priests, so the religious professionals, and the elders of the people, so now the religious lay people, so it's it's very broad, uh, inclusive, and it says, took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And do notice there at the end of verse 1, they took counsel not to find out if Jesus was innocent or guilty, not to find out the truth, not to get to the bottom of the matter. Even the way it's worded in the original text, experts, grammar experts, grammar experts tell us, is meant to stress that their minds are already made up. They take counsel to put him to death. They are committed. It's a don't confuse us with the facts moment. We've already concluded what we want to conclude about Jesus, and that is we want him killed. We've already determined the end game, which is rather telling already. Now, if you recall, and maybe you do or you don't, but I can help remind you, the Jews have already concluded that Jesus is a blasphemer or a blasphemer, whichever one you choose. It means it means to lie, but in a religious sense, it's to, to speak lies about God. Jesus has claimed to be the eternal one. He's claimed God as his father. He's claimed to be the son, which would make him divine. So they've already found him guilty of blasphemy. We see it from Annas in John chapter 18. Uh, we saw it in Matthew 26 a few weeks ago. Caiaphas, the high priest, he's been condemned under his reign over his oversight. So it's already settled, but here's the problem. The problem is the Romans might not care. So Israel's occupied by the Romans under Roman authority. And if the Jews want the Romans to crucify Jesus, you've got to give them more than that. The, the, the Romans really don't care much if this man says he's God because the Romans are polytheists. They believe in many gods. So the Jews are monotheist and they say, that's blasphemous to say you're equal to God. You should be killed. That's not very appealing to the Romans. Why would, why would we care if there's another God among, among the pantheon, among the many? So what the Jews now need to do, and they're up to no good here, they need to make it political. They need to make it about government. They need to make Jesus about threatening Caesar and the government and Rome. And so that's what they're going to do. We will see it here. They're doing what religious leaders sometimes do worst, and that's misrepresent Jesus in order to get something that they want. So let's keep going in verse 2, where it says, And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So not like our kind of governor, but this kind of governor would be a different sort of governor. I'll say something about that in a minute. But if you want to just jot it down in the margin, if you're using a, a, a Bible where you can do that, Luke 23 is a parallel account. And there we clearly have the political stuff. Matthew doesn't include it, but it's part of the narrative, and listen to what it says. We found this man, this is before Pilate, number one, misleading our nation, which is kind of ironic because 
the Jews are so put out by the Romans and what they've done to the nation. But they're going to appeal there because they're trying to get Rome's attention. He's a national threat, not just a religious problem. So misleading our nation. Number two, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Now the Jews would have their attention. Now they would have Pilate's attention. He, he's trying to get us to, to do tax evasion or, or, or to not pay our taxes to Caesar, which is not true because Jesus has already talked about this. If memory serves, I think it was in chapter 20. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It is chapter 20. So that's not true. And then thirdly, in Luke 23, 2, it says, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king, which is true but maybe not in the same sense that they would make the accusation. He's claiming to be Messiah. He's claiming to be Christ. And that means he's claiming to be king or a king, they say, which is a problem if you've got Caesar devotion. And so they're spinning this and presenting him as a threat to the government, a threat to Caesar, so now they can get Rome on board so that now Rome can carry out the dirty work and now Rome can carry out the execution. Does that make sense? It's pretty straightforward, but it is definitely a ruse. It is true he is Messiah. He claims to be Messiah. The other things aren't true, but he's not even claiming to be Messiah in the sense they're claiming to be Messiah or claiming that he is. Okay, before we move on, just a few things about Pilate because I like Pilate. That sounds terrible. I could get fired for that. Well, okay, I, I like Pilate for this reason. I like it that we're... Where there are churches who in their liturgy, in the way they do things week in and week out, I grew up in a church like this, um, didn't even teach the Bible, but they said true things because they recited the Apostles' Creed. And so if you were to visit a church that has a more formal kind of liturgy and they recite the Apostles' Creed, what, what does it say in the Apostles' Creed? Suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. I like that. I like that a lot. I like the Apostles' Creed. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. How wild is it that today, thousands and thousands of people where they recite the Apostles' Creed are naming Pontius Pilate. And you're thinking right now, why in the world would the pastor think he likes that? Because what it's doing is it's affirming a historical reality. Jesus didn't come here to be in our hearts as some sort of Gnostic um, phantom kind of guy. It wasn't just in a dream that he came. It wasn't just in someone's imagination. He came here as a real human being for real human beings like us. And he suffered under the governance of a real human being, a historical figure named Pilate. That's the part I like. That's the part I like. But Pilate's a bit of a thug, Okay. Pilate, um, typically his position would be held by a military person, um, more so than you would typically think than a religious person. Uh, Pilate has the power of life and death. Pilate, by this point in time, historically has already defiled the temple. He has already killed Jewish people. He has already taken their money dishonestly to fund some of his building projects. Um, we're not totally sure. I'm, we're sure about those things historically. We're not totally sure on this one, but some would conclude by now he's already at least under the scrutiny, under the magnifying glass of Caesar. 
Maybe that's why he's extra careful with Jesus. We do know that in AD 36, he is recalled and he's been acting badly to some degree because he's finally banished under the reprimand of Caesar. So he's that kind of governor, a different kind of governor. Now I have to rudely interrupt, but I'm actually not being too rude in my interruption because it's a biblical interruption. Because now what happens is, verses 3 to 10, take the camera and rather quickly put it on Judas. So quickly that oftentimes preachers, when they preach this passage, skip verses 3 to 10. I've done that before when I preached Matthew. I skipped verses 3 to 10 and I put those verses with chapter 26 because it's about Judas. But this time around, I'm going to leave it right here and say, we're going to have a, we're going to have a camera, camera change and we're going to have a little side story going on here. And we believe in inspiration and we believe that Matthew did it on purpose for a reason. Might scratch our heads and say, why? Here's my guess. And I think it's actually intriguing. One thing that's happening with Jesus being on trial is unsuspecting voices say he's innocent. And there will be unsuspecting voice after unsuspecting voice after unsuspecting voice, men and women alike, saying he's innocent, you shouldn't crucify him. And guess who is going to say he's innocent? Judas. Even Judas. Shocking. Even Judas. So I think that's why Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit, guidance of the Spirit, includes the Judas account in right in the midst of ours. Could be wrong, but I think that's why it happened. So we're going to leave it right there. If you would, look at verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus... That right there is just enough to make my mind go crazy and cross-eyed, if that were possible. So we have Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. He's the Savior. The Savior is, it says, saw that Jesus was condemned. Who should be condemned, not saviors? Condemned, condemnation is for unrighteous people, lawbreakers, not saviors. Uh, he should be justified because he's, a, he's righteous and he does the right thing. So there's all kinds of wrong going on. Betrayer, he shouldn't betray him. He shouldn't be condemned, found, found legally guilty of breaking the law. It, it hasn't happened. Keep reading if you would. He changed his mind. Huh. Interesting. Some old translations say repent, which is unfortunate because it's actually not the typical Greek word for repent, as in a saving sense. It's the word, as the ESV has it, at least here, he changed his mind. It's also used sometimes, like in 2 Corinthians 7, for regret. It feels bad. This doesn't mean Judas became a Christian all of a sudden, but he feels bad about his decision because his decision was a bad decision. He's done the wrong thing, which is shocking, I know, to see. But even Judas has seen Jesus for who he is, at least to a degree. Let's keep going. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders that they'd paid him earlier. We saw that. Verse 4, saying, I have sinned, true or false. 
Yeah, big time true. Big time true. By betraying innocent blood. True or false? Big time true. It's amazing when godly, upright people tell the truth. It's amazing when the deviants tell the truth. Even Judas here. Even Judas is speaking the truth about Jesus' innocence. He won't be the only one, but it's so interesting. Matthew taps him and says, I'm even going to have Judas show how bad even the best people are, the religious leaders of Israel. The villain is speaking the truth. So now Judas is at least thinking as clear as the demons do because the, the demons in Matthew chapter 28 spoke the truth about Jesus. They knew who he was. Doesn't mean they were saved. Doesn't mean he's saved. But he's saying what's right. He's saying what's right. So just so we don't have, just so we don't have to have any questions about whether Jesus is innocent, we're going to see Pilate talk about it. We're going to see Herod talk about it. We're going to see Mrs. Pilate talk about it. All kinds of people that you wouldn't expect. They're not inherently good people, but they're acknowledging the goodness of Jesus. And you know who else you can add to the list? Even Judas. Even Judas. I'm so glad that part's included. I'm so glad that we can see that here. How about verse 4? They said, the religious leaders say to Judas, he wants to return the money they paid him. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Literally, see yourself. And scholars tell us it's a, it's a Jewish idiom, a Jewish common saying. In other words, like our idiom, our common saying, that's your problem. This is not our problem. You feel bad about what you did to Jesus? You betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver that we paid you because we wanted it done. You know what? That's your problem. Now, I'm inviting you to really think about whether or not that should have been their response. You're to, who are we talking about here? They say that to Judas. Judas is a Jew. And the Jewish religious leaders say, it's not our problem, buddy. Take a hike. It's on you. It's your problem, not our problem. Think about that. They're the shepherds of Israel. They're the pastors of Israel. They are the pastors of Judas. They're supposed to be. What, what, so therefore, if that's true, I know it's true, what, what should they, what should they say? They, sh they should say, oh, oh, oh my. We've done something wrong. You've done something wrong. Let's solve our wrongdoing. Let's, let's do all that we can to reverse this problem. Uh, let, let us help you understand how you can be truly forgiven. Uh, let, let, let's seek righteousness. That's what they should be doing. Instead, they're saying, you know what? We can't help you. We don't want to help you. It's a really bad look for the religious leaders. What's it to us? It should be a lot to them. But they say it's nothing to us. It's your problem. We don't, we, we don't want to deal with facts. Verse 5 says, And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, that is Judas, and he went and hanged himself. And I'm not sure what, what we should even say other than this is very sad. 
The shepherds don't help the sheep. It ends in crisis. It ends tragically. It ends awfully. It ends sadly. Now, I don't want to defend Judas as a good guy because he's not a good guy. I've read enough of the Bible to know that I'm not going to name any of my kids Judas. He's not a good guy. There are other texts that we would even want to go to to see he's not a good guy. The son of perdition. Better if he hadn't been born. I, I, I understand Judas. But here's what I do want to do with you all thinking, and that is to say, the religious leaders of Israel are bad actors. Judas isn't the only one who's got problems. And he came to them for help. And they don't give it to him. They should be the best of people, but they're not. Okay, we should keep going on and and see that they, they respond. Verse 6 says, But the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Oh, how pious, right? I mean, think about just how, how, how crazy this is. Based upon what they've just said, based upon what they've done toward Jesus, and they're like, oh, you know, we, we couldn't use blood money because after all, that, that wouldn't be fitting. That wouldn't be godly. They say, that's not lawful. It's literally, that, that's not possible. We would never, ever, ever do that because we're talking about holiness codes. That would be unthinkable. It's meant to be gross. It's meant to be pathetic because it is. They're to be moral actors, but they're not. So ironically, but here, they're, they're in the face of wanting to condemn innocent Jesus, they're talking about what's lawful and what's not lawful. They're the ones that paid Judas the money. Do you remember that in chapter 26, verses 14 and 15? Temple ethics. Just as a reminder, if you were wondering back earlier in chapter 23 why Jesus was so angry and so harsh and so judgmental, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, aiming at the religious leaders, we just have more and more reasons to understand why Jesus did it. How they had acted and how they would act. It makes a whole lot of sense now if it didn't before. Well, just when you didn't, just when you thought it couldn't get more bizarre, I don't, I don't know if it could get more pathetic or worse or more bizarre. It gets more bizarre. How about verse seven? So they took counsel. So they've got to have a meeting and come together and be united again. They took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. And I say that couldn't get more bizarre or strange because They're going to use the money. They can't use it for the temple because we have ethics around here. But we're so good. We're so kind-hearted. We're so obedient to God's word that we know that we've been called by Yahweh to show generosity and hospitality to strangers because they're supposed to. It's biblical that they're going to do that now. It's just gross. It's disgusting. It's awful what's happening here. It's utterly 
hypocritical what's happening here. It's sleazy. Verse 8 says, Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So we are going to obey God. And if, therefore, a stranger would come, and Israel is supposed to be hospitable to strangers, if a stranger, stranger were to come and, and they were to come as a group and one of them were to die as they're making a journey from one place to another place and, and they can't put the body on an airplane and fly it back for a funeral, that obviously wouldn't work back then. Or if an individual were to come and they were to die, you know what? We have a special cemetery for strangers because we're just those kind of people. We're obedient people. That's surely what's what's going on here. Just in my cynicism and sarcasm, I, I say it probably would be called the first Potter's Field Memorial Cemetery made possible by the gracious gifts of the most reverend chief priest, Jerusalem chapter. You know, my grandparents built that because we're so faithful. I think it's meant to be gross. It's meant to show irony. They're such horrific bad actors with logs in their eye, if you will, or that they can't see. I do want to remind you that we do have a good example here of religious leaders who are part of the right religion doing good things, masking doing horrific, horrible, terrible, unspeakable, the worst things. So let's not be naive and conclude as long as people are part of the right religion and they do some things that look good, they must be good under the hood. It might not be so. Might not be so. This is unsettling. This is troubling. Where you'd think there would be innocence, there isn't innocence. There's actually corruption. Okay. Then it says in verse 9, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So fulfillment theme. That's probably another reason why he includes the Judas account. All of this trial, all of these things happening to Jesus, it is happening, happening according to plan. It's not just happenstance or bad luck. A plan is unfolding, prophecies being fulfilled. He references Jeremiah from Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah 19. It's also borrowing from Zechariah chapter 11. It might be that he says Jeremiah because uh, Jeremiah would often come at the beginning of the list of the prophetic books. But it, So it wouldn't have to just be limited to, to Jeremiah only. But if you were to look at the Jeremiah passage, we won't take the time to do it now, in the Zechariah passage, you find um, this rehearsal of, of Israel's history and the slaughter of the innocents and, and, and child sacrifice and all of these horrific, sinful things that have happened in their history. And here we have the worst thing of all happening. The perfectly innocent one being killed even by those who are supposed to be part of the right religion. Okay, now we're going to get, now, now the camera goes back. 
So that was an aside, that was a tangent, but it was designed, I think, to show sovereign purposes of God unfolding, but also even Judas says Jesus is innocent. Now, how about verse 11? Now, Jesus stood before the governor, the governor who would be Pilate, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the Messiah? Are you the deliverer? Are you the Christ? Then verse 11 says, please notice there, Jesus said, you have said so. Not the only time he's spoken that way. Notice it's it's not a dodge, but there's definite nuance. There's there's even the, the way he says it is, yes, I am, but there's there's nuance. Not probably for this reason, not the not the way you think I am. Not the way the Jews have presented me as being. He's affirming, but he's affirming in a toned down, unique, nuanced way. It won't be toned down, it won't be nuanced when he's raised from the dead. But right now, silent, before death, fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah 53 mentions it multiple times. He's not going to deny the facts. He's not going to deny the truth. But he's not going to defend himself. You have said so. An awkward but a good and right way he says this because he doesn't want to go there now. What he, where, where he wants to go and he's going to go is to the cross. So it's no longer time to talk about that. But he is affirming. Now, lots of us have been in situations before too where somebody has been a true expert at something. And then, then there's somebody who thinks they know a lot about something and the true expert kind of doesn't go there with them and kind of changes the subject or moves on or pats them on the head. And I'm not saying this is that exact same thing and it's not a perfect illustration, but you, you get the idea. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Jesus definitely knows what he's talking about, but it's not time to deal with it now. He's already been clear. He will be clear. Experts dealing with seeming self-appointed experts can be pretty awkward. I think it's kind of like that. Um, you, you know, let me talk about myself. I can play the piano. And I do this. I can play the piano because with these two fingers, I can play Peter, Peter, Pumpkin Eater. Without any music. I'm that good at it. I mean, it, it's something to be holding. <laughs> Imagine if I played with that kind of attitude, you know, in front of Beethoven and then said, do you play? <laughs> Beethoven would perhaps say a little. <laughs> like, right? Who's this clown um, clowning around? He's not going to waste his speech. He said what was true, but you know what? This is, this is just silly. I'm not saying this is exactly like that, but for sure, Jesus at this point in time kind of isn't given the time of day. It, it, it is as you say. It is as you say. Verse 12 says, But when he was accused by the chief priests and 
elders, and we know what he's being accused of based upon Luke's account. He doesn't pay his taxes. He's a threat to society. He claims sovereignty over Caesar. Verse 12 then says, he gave no answer. So they're accusing him and he's giving them no answer. Again, back to Isaiah 53. He doesn't open his mouth. He's silent. He doesn't open his mouth. Meek, unwavering in his commitment to go to the cross. Verse 13 says, Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Pilate's, Pilate's saying, Say something! Right? I, 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 you can defend yourself. You're not even trying. Do something, say something. Verse 14, But he gave him no answer. Not even to a single charge. To that, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Right? I, I can't believe this. Why, why are you just letting this all happen? Why are you all letting, why are you just letting this go? And again, I'll remind you what I reminded you of just a moment ago. He's going to say something. He's been saying something. He's going to say something, but not right now. Because he's on purpose going to the cross. He will say something when he is bodily raised from the dead and opens his mouth to interpret it. But right now, he's not saying anything on purpose. Now, before we move on, you may have to just make a note if you're a fan of the chronology. Uh, the chronology in between verses 14 and 15, Luke 23 informs us that something extra happens. So Matthew isn't saying wrong things. He just doesn't include everything which would be true of all the gospel accounts. But something also happens at this point in time, and that is this. Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Pilate's looking for a way out, potentially. He's under great scrutiny, possibly. And so he sends him to Herod. Herod, you know, that real wonderful guy that had John the Baptist beheaded. Well, Herod, according to Luke 23, is in Jerusalem for Passover, Herod was in charge. He oversaw Galilee. Jesus had spent a lot of, lot of time in Galilee. And so maybe Herod's got something on him. So that all does happen. I won't take the time to read it, but Luke 23, 6, uh, a Galilean belongs to Herod's jurisdiction. He sends him over to Herod, who himself is in Jerusalem at that time. So all of that's happening, but here's the, here's the, the, the takeaway, here's why, why we need to bring that into focus, I think. Luke 23, 14. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. 15, neither did Herod. So we heard from Judas. Now we're hearing from Pilate. And we have heard from Herod. Innocent, innocent, innocent. What the Jews have brought against him isn't sticking. It's not sticking. He is innocent. Then verse 15 says, Now at the feast, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd, this is Passover feast, for the crowd, any one prisoner whom they wanted. So he's going to be a good politician and try to give the people something they want, even if it's not right. Verse 16, and they had then, excuse me, and they had then a notorious prisoner. Let's emphasize that for a moment. Notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Luke 23 says this notorious prisoner called Barabbas uh, had been in prison already for insurrection. 
and for murder. So Barabbas is one bad person. So you, 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 he, he's a serious bad actor. Barabbas is. Now, listen carefully. This is, this is interesting. As if everything in the sermon isn't interesting. I found this extra interesting. For me, this was worth the price of admission to think about. Some of your Bibles, depending on the edition, the translation, who published it, and those things, may have a marginal notation. Some manuscripts refer to Barabbas as Jesus Barabbas. How do you feel about that? Let's talk about our feelings. Well, there's not great evidence, and we, I could I could bore you talking and, and quoting Bruce Metzger and all of this New Testament kind of scholarship stuff, and but it's actually important. The older manuscripts tend to not have it. The late, some later ones do. There's a whole swirling debate about it. But but Metzger, who's a New Testament expert, actually talks about maybe maybe scribes, professional scribes, were embarrassed by it. They didn't feel good about it. Because who wants to have this clown, insurrectionist murderer, named Jesus? So he argues that may, it may have been original manuscript and let's kind of spruce things up a little bit because he doesn't deserve to have the same name as our Savior does. And remember, Jesus of Nazareth is not the only person ever named Jesus. Okay? And it would be a good name, right? Yahweh saves. I wouldn't recommend you naming your children Judas or Jesus, because it be, could be kind of confusing. Okay? But it's a good name. Our God is a saving God. Yahweh saves. Would have been a good name. If Barabbas' parents named him Jesus Barabbas, you could see why they would. Here's why I'm bringing it up and, and getting you to try to think about this. Let's just say his name actually was and that those manuscripts actually are the legitimate ones. He's the Savior, the Jesus, as, a, as an insurrectionist that a lot of Jews would have liked. Right? Jews don't like Roman occupation, Roman oppression, stealing their money, occupying their land, perverting the temple, defiling things. The, the, one of our, our main prayer requests is to get these guys out of here. And at least this guy, Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas, is, is a savior who tried. He got arrested. He got put down. But you know what? He, he's, a, he's a guy named Savior who tried to save. Give us Barabbas. But you see the perversion. You see the, the, the twisting of the whole thing. Here we have Jesus of Nazareth who will go silently because it's according to plan to give himself up to be crucified. And it will look like he doesn't save. But boldly in chapter 28 with the resurrection, he's the Savior. He's the Jesus who does save. That'll preach. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but regardless of the manuscript or not, what, regardless of the point or not, or, or the naming or not, the point is still the same. They want the guy who tried to overthrow the government. Give us a failure savior. 
the believers say, give us the one who might look like a failure in the short run because he's fulfilling things, but he actually delivers. He actually saves. I'm super fascinated by the whole thing. I'll, I'll admit to you, the last time I preached through Matthew, I just ignored all of that stuff. Because I don't want anybody else with my Savior's name. It's probably a little bit saner to say, you know what, there were a lot of people named that. And actually, it serves as a great contrast. A great contrast. Okay, let's speed things up. Because I told you I'd talk about the birth of Jesus next week. So, verse 17 then says, So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ, called Messiah? And if we look at John 18, we won't take the time to do so. He is assuming that are going to say, Let Jesus go free. Jesus of Nazareth. Luke chapter 23 uh, assumes the same thing. Uh, I will therefore punish and release him. So we're going to punish him because he's created problems for us. We're going to do something, but we're going to let him go. Because surely you would, wouldn't ask for Barabbas. Surely that wouldn't make any sense at all. Verse 18 says, For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Oh, so maybe he's not so sure. It wasn't because Jesus is unrighteous. It wasn't because he was bad. It wasn't because he was evil. It wasn't because he was selfish. It was because of the envy of the people and the religious leaders. Okay, now all of a sudden in the midst of all of this, Pilate gets a, gets a note or a messenger. It's from Mrs. Pilate. Okay? How about verse 19? Besides, when he was sitting on the judgment seat, the Bema seat, where you judge, note the irony, his wife sent word to him, have, and, and it says this, have nothing to do with, I love this, that righteous man, that law-keeping, obedient man. That's what righteous means. The guy who loves neighbor, the guy who loves God, have nothing to do with him. I love it that it comes from her. So we have, we have the right thing from Pilate. We have the right thing from Herod. We have the right thing from Judas. Now we have the right thing from Mrs. Pilate, as I like to call her. Her name is actually Claudia. Historians tell us. Have nothing to do with him, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now some people in church history, they love her. They name buildings after her and make her a saint because she says... She's defending Jesus. But you could look at it more of a negative light. Who hates righteousness? People who aren't righteous. You know what? Just avoid him like the plague because I dreamt about him and I don't want to be around righteousness because I'm not righteous. So I would maybe be hesitant to make her a patron saint, but nobody asked me. Um, verse 20 says, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And literally, it's the word destroy. We know that it means kill or crucify or murder, as some translations say. Uh, but it's very graphic. He uses the word for destroy. How about verse 21? The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? They said, Barabbas. 
22, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ, Messiah? He wants to put this on them. Verse 22 goes on to say, They all, we saw that earlier, so this is not only all of the religious leaders, now he's got more people involved. They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Again, don't confuse us with the facts. We know what we've already concluded. We want the other Savior who can't save, not the one who can. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd. D.A. Carson, the New Testament commentator, says, at this point in time, we don't really have any evidence that the Romans did such things. But that the Romans picked up some of the Jewish customs for ceremonial washings and incorporated them into their own lifestyle, which the Jews hated because they're paganizing their traditions for ceremonial washings. If that's true or not, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but let's say that it is. So here the irony of the pagan Pilate washing his hands as if he were a righteous Jew and they're not righteous right before their very eyes. Verse 24 then goes on to say at the end, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And I'm not sure if there should be a connection or not, but it struck me the fact that that sounds similar to what the religious leaders said to whom? To Judas. That's your problem. looks pretty similar now. It looks like an opportunity for what comes around, goes around. 25 says, and all the people, so not just the leaders, I jumped, to, jumped ahead on that a little bit, but now we see the inclusivity of it all. Now we see unity is not always good again. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And I would just encourage you to think about how horrible a statement that would be. And what kind of heart that would have to come from. Eichmann's in all of us. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Mock scepter, right? Psalm 2, Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. Post-resurrection, interesting imagery, but this is not a rod of iron where you rule. This is mock rod. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Horrible, terrible, awful, heinous, perverse. All of the people. And damn our children if what we're doing isn't right. I want to end on a positive. From the same group of people. From the same group of people. 
Fast forward a bit after the resurrection. Peter the apostle preaches the good news of salvation in this resurrected Savior. And he talks about this very thing. He talks about this very thing and offers hope to the Eichmanns. Is what he does. Acts 3.13 The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus. The one whom, He says, you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when He had decided to release Him. But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So there's preaching conviction, but down in verse 19. Listen to this, and we'll end on this. It's so wonderful. He says to those very same people, Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Let's remember the heinous, awful nature of the fallen, sinful human heart. Wiped away sins. Gone. There's only one way it can happen, and that is through the substitutionary, perfect, gracious, generous, loving work of that very same Savior, Jesus, who didn't stay dead but was raised from the dead, who then calls all to trust in Him, and then commissions, as we'll see in chapter 28, all who are trusting in Him to tell other people about good news to people who have bad hearts, all different kinds of people, even the religious leaders. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this great passage of scripture. Thank you for what you have done in history through your son, the Lord Jesus. And thank you for what you are doing now through the spirit of Christ. We are thankful to know that we don't look to ourselves. We don't need to look to ourselves or to other people or to institutions or programs, but that we can look at the one who was raised from the dead, the one who went through all of these things even silently so that, in fact, he would be crucified. Thank you that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ. May all who are hearing the good news of salvation and sins being wiped away trust in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go.